morning. Please take out your copy of the scriptures and turn to Luke chapter 4. If you did not bring a Bible with you, no problem. Just use one of the Black Pew Bibles in your row, and you can turn to page 807. So over the past several months, we've been going through the Gospel of Luke, one of the four biblical accounts of the life of our Lord Jesus Christ, and today we find ourselves in the beginning of chapter 4. Now, in the first three chapters, Luke has kind of laid out the introduction, if you will, for the rest of the Gospel. Chapter 1 was about the events that directly preceded his birth, and so uh, the angel's visits to Elizabeth and Mary, uh, the incarnation in Mary's womb, the birth of John the Baptist as the one who would go before Jesus. And chapter 2 was about Jesus' birth in Bethlehem, and then we have those two accounts, uh, both at the temple from when he was 40 days old and then when he was 12 years old. And then chapter 3 was about the ministry of the forerunner, John the Baptist, and then Jesus' baptism and his genealogy. And so those three chapters cover about 30 years or so of Jesus' life, but really he hasn't been the main character for much of it. He only speaks once uh, when his parents were looking for him. Uh, Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And his name only appears seven times in those 170 verses. But those introductory chapters now lead us into the rest of the book, starting in chapter 4, which are all about Jesus' life and ministry. So that's where we find ourselves this morning, Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. So look along in your Bibles as I read the passage This is the word that God has for you today. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him alone shall you serve. And he took him up to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Now, I assume that many of you are familiar with our passage for this morning, the account of the temptation of Jesus. 
Maybe you felt a little convicted last week because you do skim through the genealogy. But see, now you have a newfound appreciation for Esli and Maath. But today's passage, right, in contrast with last week's, this is one that many are familiar with. Even most children are familiar with. Maybe you've even heard a sermon or two on this text. So one of the things that I tried to do last week, right, to show you why an often overlooked text is important and significant, I don't really have to do that today. Like, you already know that this event, this narrative, is a significant one. But regardless of how well-known a story is, right, what we're trying to accomplish overall, it's the same. We're trying to figure out what God is saying in this text and then how we might apply it to our lives. And we're not going to be able to do any of that without God's help. And so let's go to the Lord once again in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word, uh, your perfect word, which uh, you have not only written by the hands of men, carried along by the Holy Spirit, uh, but that which you have preserved for us through the centuries that we might hold a copy in our hands this morning. As we turn to your word, we pray that you would help us uh, because we confess that our natural inclination is to be uh, distracted, to be focused on uh, trivial things. And so we pray that you would grant to us ears to hear spiritual truths from your word. Allow us to see your son rightly as the holy and glorious and wonderful and merciful Savior that he is. We pray for those in this room who do not know you. We pray that today would be the day of salvation, the day on which their eyes would be opened to the light of the knowledge of your glory in the face of your son. We ask all this in his name. Amen. Let me make a few just preliminary comments before we get to this text. First, let me just briefly address some theological issues that come up anytime this text is discussed. Maybe some of you are thinking, well, Jesus is God, right? We recited that this morning, very God of very God. And James 1.13 says that God cannot be tempted with evil, and so how can Jesus be tempted? Well, we need to remember the hypostatic union, right? We've discussed that in previous weeks, that Jesus, uh, in the miracle of the incarnation, has two natures in his one person, and so he is both totally fully God and totally fully man. And while there's a lot of mystery there, I think it's helpful for us to think about the temptation in light of the hypostatic union. In his divine nature, uh, Jesus cannot be tempted, uh, but in his human nature, Jesus can truly be tempted. But with that said, uh, Jesus could not have sinned, uh, something the theologians call the impeccability of Christ, because an act of sin by the one person of Jesus would necessarily involve both natures, including his divine nature, which cannot sin. And yet at the same time, we don't want to minimize the temptations because Jesus really was tempted. Remember that in his incarnation, he voluntarily sets aside the independent use of his divine attributes 
And so Jesus doesn't just like shrug off these temptations because he's God and God cannot be tempted. No, these are legitimate, powerful temptations from Satan that assault him in his humanity. And yet he perfectly resists them all. The second thing I want to say before we get to the text is that this is one of those texts that I think we can easily miss the main point. Here's what I mean by that. Uh, When we read this narrative, when we think about what's happening in this story, the temptation that we have is to make this story primarily about us. And so what Jesus does here in this narrative just becomes like a launching pad for us to think about how we need to fight temptation, how we might fight sin ourselves. Here's the thing. Uh, This passage is not about us. Now, let me be clear here. Uh, Are there things that we as believers can learn from Jesus' example as we seek to fight temptation in our own lives? Yes, absolutely. Chief among those would be using the Word of God, knowing the Word of God, memorizing the Word of God. Psalm 119, 11, I have stored up your Word in my heart that I might not sin against you so that we would effectively fight against temptation. And being empowered by the Holy Spirit, using the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, like amen and amen. And also along those lines would be us recognizing and knowing our spiritual enemy. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Seeing how he tempts Jesus here, thinking about how we ourselves are tempted so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Again, amen and amen. So I'm not saying that's not important. Pastor said that fighting sin isn't important. No, right? John Owen, right? Be killing sin or it will be killing you. I'm also not saying that a preacher should not refer to this narrative when he's preaching about the importance of, say, knowing the word of God to fight sin. He should, because this text is an excellent example of that. What I am saying, though, is that none of that is the primary reason why Luke gives us this passage in his gospel. And so while all of that is like a valid application of the text, if that's all that we come away with, we've entirely missed the point of the passage. And we've turned this passage about Jesus into what we need to do. Here's another way to think about that. If Luke wanted to give us a passage whose main point was about how we as followers of Christ should fight our temptations, don't you think it would have made more sense for him to write about, well, uh, temptations that we actually go through? Because here's the thing, the temptations that Luke writes about here, that Jesus endures, they're not really anything like our temptations. Like, if I'm really hungry, and someone tells me to turn a rock into a bread, into a loaf of bread, that's not that tempting for me, because I can't do it. I, I am not tempted to dunk a basketball, because I can't do it. And all the kingdoms of the world, 
I don't want all the kingdoms of the world, right? I can barely manage my two-bedroom apartment. How am I going to manage all the kingdoms of the world? And don't get me started on jumping off the pinnacle of the temple. Like that, that is just not a temptation for me. And I trust it is not for you as well. You see what I'm saying here? Uh, this narrative is about temptations that are unique and specific to Jesus. And his victory over those unique and specific temptations. Now, are there overlaps with the temptations that we as believers deal with? Sure. But the differences are much more striking than the similarities. This text is not primarily about how we fight sin. So if that's not the point of the passage, then what is? The point of this passage is to show that Jesus is the true, perfect, obedient Son of God. The point of this passage is to show that Jesus is the true, perfect, obedient Son of God. You see, in each of these three temptations, the temptation is for him to go against the will of the Father. And in each of the three temptations, Jesus remains steadfastly aligned to the will of the Father as the obedient Son of God. And therefore, and this is why Luke gives us this narrative in this gospel, therefore, Jesus, as the true and perfect Son of God, is qualified to be our Savior. That's the point of this narrative. And so this passage is not so much about how we can be like Jesus, as much as it's about how Jesus is altogether different from us. Because he and he alone is the true Son of God. All three temptations are specific to Jesus as the Son of God. And by overcoming those temptations, Jesus proves himself to be the perfect Son of God. Now, if you've been with us since the beginning of the book, you'll know that Luke's kind of been building up to this very point through the first three chapters. Remember chapter 1? Gabriel appears to Mary, and what does he say about Jesus? This child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And then what does Jesus say about himself at the end of chapter 2? 12-year-old Jesus, he declares himself to be the Son of God. Did you not know that I must be in my Father's house? And then in chapter 3, it's God the Father himself, who at Jesus' baptism declares Jesus to be the Son of God. You are my beloved Son. And you'll remember from last Sunday, The passage that comes right before the temptation here is the genealogy, and the genealogy ends, scan your eyes back, one verse from our passage, back to Luke 3.38, the genealogy ends with Adam, the son of God. Remember, there's no chapter breaks in the original, so look how chapter 4 begins with, and Jesus. Adam, the son of God, and Jesus. We talked about this last week, how the first Adam, the son of God, in the sense that God created him from the dust of the earth, how Adam failed in the Garden of Eden when he ate of the tree. When Satan, uh, the serpent, tempted him, Adam and Eve ate of the one tree of which they were commanded not to eat. And God said, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. 
And since Adam was our representative, Adam's sin plunged all of his descendants, all human beings, all of us, into the curse of sin and death. So that all who are born in Adam were born with a sin nature, were born as sinners who then choose to sin and thus earn the punishment do our sin, eternal death in hell. And so as Paul says elsewhere, in Adam all die. But Jesus, the Son of God, the second Adam, has now come to undo what the first Adam did. Now ultimately, he's going to do that by dying for the sins of his people. But, and we can't forget this, He can't do that unless he first lives a perfect, righteous life. That is, the substitutionary death of Jesus is not possible without the righteous life of Jesus. The second Adam had to be righteous and holy in order to undo what the first Adam did through his unrighteousness and unholiness. Now, that righteous life of Jesus starts in this gospel— with his incarnation, right? Jesus is divinely conceived by the Holy Spirit in Mary's womb, and so Adam's sin nature is not passed to him. And so Jesus is the first human being ever born who was not in Adam. And so he's perfect by birth, but he's also perfect in his life. And God the Father publicly testifies to that at his baptism. With you I am well pleased. Well-pleased because he is holy and righteous and sinless. But now here in our passage, the second Adam is going to be put to the test with regards to that holiness and righteousness and sinlessness. So let's start in verse 1. Luke tells us that Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit, something that's always been true of him in his incarnation, but was visibly manifested at his baptism. But it's not just that he's full of the Spirit in a general sense. Look again at verse 1. It's also that he's specifically led by the Spirit in the wilderness to face these temptations. And so this is not... Like Jesus, he wasn't being careful. He kind of let his guard down, and now all of a sudden he's like sneak attacked by Satan in the wilderness. No, it's the Spirit who leads him into this conflict with Satan. Going back to something I said earlier, uh, that's another illustration of how Jesus' temptations here are altogether different from ours. Right? Jesus was led by the Spirit into battle with the evil one. But he himself later teaches us to pray the exact opposite for ourselves. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And so for 40 days, uh, Jesus is in this wilderness, this region between the Jordan River and the kind of populated parts of Judah. Got this barren Uh, and desolate desert for miles and miles and miles. And during those 40 days, Jesus eats nothing. And Luke tells us he was hungry. It's like, oh, no kidding. You may remember about 10 years ago, uh, Snickers, 
ran these ads, and the tagline was, uh, you're not you when you're hungry. Well, it's true, as any of us who have ever been called hangry uh, can attest to. As human beings, we are particularly weak when we're hungry, when we're famished. And in those moments, we are particularly susceptible to sin. And so Satan tries to capitalize on this particular moment when Jesus is physically weak in his humanity. He is starving to death. And so he makes Jesus a proposal. Look at verse 3. If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Now that if, as in if you are the Son of God, uh, it's probably better translated since. Like Satan doesn't doubt that Jesus is the Son of God. He knows that very well. Uh, Just skim down to verse 34 of chapter 4. You've got this demon who says to Jesus, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Well, Satan similarly knows who Jesus is. And so this isn't so much, I don't believe you. Prove to me that you're the Son of God. As much as it is, since you are the Son of God, you should therefore command this stone to become bread. But let's think about this. Why is this a temptation? Or put it another way, why would it be sin if Jesus did this? I mean, later on, he takes five loaves of bread and two fish, and he multiplies it to feed the multitudes. And so the sin is clearly not Jesus using his miraculous powers to create food. That is not the sin. No, Satan's temptation and the potential sin is to make Jesus distrust the loving provision of his father. What Satan is trying to do here is he is trying to pit the son against the father. And he's appealing to Jesus' hunger and lack as evidence that the father doesn't really love him. The father said he loved you. Remember your baptism? But then why would he let you suffer like this? He's forgotten you and he's forsaken you. But you don't have to go through this since you're the son of God. Go ahead. Just make some bread from these stones. You're the one that created these stones anyway. Chapter 3, John, he's talking about how God raises up children of Abraham from stones. Well, surely you can make yourself a little bit of bread from those stones. The temptation then was to distrust the Father's loving provision. To use his own powers as the Son of God apart from the Father's will. Uh, To allow this legitimate physical need to make him go against the Father and do something, in this case create bread, that was not God's will for him. Faced with that temptation, a real temptation in his humanity, Jesus answers by quoting a portion of Deuteronomy 8.3, man shall not live by bread alone. Now you read the context of that verse in Deuteronomy chapter 8. Uh, God is talking to the Israelites. 
and telling them that the reason he allowed them to be hungry, the reason that he fed them with manna, was so that they would trust him to provide. Man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Every word from the Lord, specifically for Israel, the word that God had given them to provide for them, uh, to supply for them, so that his people would not look to the bread itself, but to the one who could be trusted to give that bread. And so... Jesus rebuffs the temptation. Obedience to God, trust in God's will and in God's provision is more important and more necessary than bread itself. And so he will not use his divine powers independently of his Father's will, regardless of how hungry and weak he is. Basically, John 4.34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And so in the face of this great temptation, Jesus remains steadfastly aligned to the will of the Father as the obedient Son of God. Which brings us to the second temptation, verses 5 through 8. Now, if you're a careful Bible reader, uh, you may have noticed something interesting about the difference between Luke's account of these temptations and then Matthew's account in Matthew chapter 4. Each of them starts with the stone into bread temptation, but then Luke goes to the kingdoms and then jumping off the temple, while Matthew has those in the opposite order. And it seems, uh, we can't be sure about this, but it seems, given how Matthew uses words like then, uh, that Matthew's going in chronological order and Luke is perhaps going in a topical order, uh, maybe because his ordering more closely parallels the account of Adam and Eve, uh, or maybe because this ordering puts Jerusalem in the last spot, uh, which would be fitting for Luke, uh, given his emphasis on Jerusalem. Uh, We can't be sure, Uh, but whatever the reason for the difference, in Luke's second temptation, the devil takes Jesus up and he shows him all the kingdoms of the world. And we don't have any details on like what exactly it means that he showed all the kingdoms of the world to Jesus in a moment of time. But look at what Satan says. Verse 6. To you... I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. Uh, Satan's referred to elsewhere as the ruler of this world, and here he offers to Jesus exactly that, the world. So again, we need to ask, what is the temptation here? How is this a temptation for Jesus as the Son of God? Well, what does the Old Testament tell us was promised to the Son of God? Psalm 2, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my Son, the Son of God. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and here's what the Son of God was promised. I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. 
You see that? The nations, the ends of the earth. That's what Jesus came for. That's what he, as the Son of God, was already promised. To be given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. Daniel 7.14. And so essentially, what Satan is doing here is he is offering Jesus what he came for. You can have it. I'll give it to you. But here's the key. You don't have to die. You don't have to be the suffering servant. You don't have to be the sacrificial lamb of God. I'll give it all to you without the cross. If you would just bow down to me. Satan didn't want Jesus to go to the cross. He didn't want Jesus to accomplish the Father's will for him. You remember when Peter later on tells Jesus that he doesn't have to die, that he doesn't have to go to the cross? What does Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. He knew exactly where that idea came from because he already saw Satan play that hand at the temptation. So again, the temptation is for Jesus to go against his father's will. The father's will is that he should die for his elect. The father's will is that the son should take upon himself all the sins of his people and suffer the wrath that they've merited. Isaiah 53.10. What is the father's will? It was the will of the Lord to crush him, to crush the suffering servant, to crush the Son of God. The temptation offered by Satan to Jesus here is for Jesus to receive the kingdoms he came for apart from the Father's will without the cross. And by the way, this is a temptation that he would deal with again uh, in an even more intensified setting at Gethsemane. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, Not my will, but yours be done. Uh, But in Gethsemane, as well as here in the wilderness, Jesus completely rejects the temptation. He remains steadfastly aligned to the will of his Father as the obedient Son of God. And here he does it once again by quoting Deuteronomy. This time it's a summary of Deuteronomy 6.13. You shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Basically, my will remains perfectly aligned with my father's and I will only get what I came for by the means that my father has decreed. Which means that he would suffer. He would go to the cross. He would set his face towards Jerusalem because the Father's plan was always for the Son of God to endure that cross, despising the shame, and only then receive his kingdom. Luke 24, 26. Was it not necessary, necessary, needed, that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Which brings us now to the third temptation in Luke, verses 9 through 12. Satan now brings Jesus to Jerusalem. They go to the pinnacle of the temple, uh, where exactly that is in terms of the temple structure, we don't know. And he says, go ahead, 
jump off. You've been quoting a lot of Bible to me. You trust the Bible? Well, doesn't Psalm 91 promise that God's going to send his angels to protect you? So again, let's ask, what is this temptation getting at? Why would Jesus be tempted to jump off the temple? Well, this temptation is similar to the first one. Notice how in both, Satan appeals to Jesus being the Son of God, if or since you are the Son of God. In this temptation, like the first, Satan is calling into question whether God the Father really does love and care for God the Son. And so Satan calls on Jesus to make his Father prove his love, prove his care, by jumping off the temple and forcing his hand into saving him. By the way, Psalm 91 being quoted here by Satan There's just a lot of irony in that because this psalm is about the one who dwells in the shelter of the Most High and abides in the shadow of the Almighty, right? The psalm is about the person who wholeheartedly trusts God and Satan quotes that psalm to try to get Jesus to do the exact opposite. Not surprisingly, it doesn't work. Jesus recognizes it recognizes it for exactly what it is, which is testing God. And so he quotes Deuteronomy 6.16, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the context of that verse in Deuteronomy, it's you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. That's the story when the Israelites demand water from God, and so Moses strikes the rock. Well, as that episode vividly demonstrates, to test God is to doubt God. It's to say that God is not worthy of your trust and then demand that he prove to you that he actually can be trusted. So again, this temptation is a temptation for Jesus to go against the will of his father by putting his father to the test. And again, Jesus remains steadfastly aligned to the will of the Father as the obedient Son of God. Which then leads to the end of the narrative, the end of these temptations. Verse 13, when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. This is like in those cartoons, the bad guy, he's defeated, and as he's leaving, he says, you haven't seen the last of me. Well, the devil leaves, but we haven't seen the last of him. He'll be back, uh, most prominently, in Jesus' final week. So what is this narrative about? Uh, What are we to take away from this narrative? Uh, Let me give you two main takeaways here, and I've already alluded to them. The first is that Jesus is the true Son of God. Jesus is the true Son of God. Uh, We've already seen how Luke ties Jesus to Adam in in the genealogy. And then here in this narrative, the contrast between Adam's failure and Jesus' victory is clearly brought to the forefront. Adam, uh, in the perfection of Eden, when tempted by the devil, he gives in to the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life. Jesus... In the desolation of the wilderness, when tempted by the devil, triumphs over 
all of those temptations. And so where the first Adam, as the representative for his progeny, plunged humanity into sin and death, well, so the second Adam, as the representative for his people, brings righteousness and life. And so Jesus shows himself to be the true son of God in a way that Adam, the son of God, was not. But in this temptation account, we see one more way in which Jesus shows himself to be the true son of God. Because there's one other person, or should I say peoples, who was referred to in the Old Testament as the Son of God. Exodus chapter 4. You shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. Again in Hosea 11. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Israel was also the son of God. But Israel, like Adam, proved to be a disobedient son. You say, what does that have to do with the temptation? Well, did you notice where all three verses that Jesus quotes in this account come from? They come from the book of Deuteronomy. Now, is that just because Jesus happened to be reading Deuteronomy that morning, and so it was just fresh on his mind? No, I don't think so. He's not just quoting random Old Testament verses. He's not just quoting random verses from Deuteronomy. He is quoting very specific verses from a very specific section of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 6 through 8 that are about Israel's wilderness wanderings. So Moses is speaking to the people. He's speaking to the nation before they finally enter the promised land. And look at how Moses describes the time that Israel spent in the wilderness. Deuteronomy 8, 2. You shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. That he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. You see that? God led Israel in the wilderness to test them. Sound familiar? It should. Well, did they pass the test? Were they obedient? No. What did they do? Well, they demanded bread from God. Every time they were hungry or thirsty, they demanded provision. They worshipped and served other gods. Most notably, the golden calf. And they tested God over and over and over. They test God. And so do you see it? Jesus quotes these passages in Deuteronomy, these passages in Deuteronomy 6 through 8, to show that where Israel, the Son of God, when tested in the wilderness, failed miserably in those three aspects— Well, Jesus, as the true Son of God, when tested in the wilderness, triumphs victorious in those same three aspects. 
And so just like Jesus shows that he is the true son of God in succeeding where Adam failed, so Jesus shows that he is the true son of God in succeeding where Israel failed. Takeaway number one from this story is that Jesus is the true son of God. Takeaway number two is that Jesus is victorious. This is a story of victory. Three times, Satan tempts Jesus with a temptation, attacking him, testing him as the Son of God, and three times, Jesus is victorious. He proves himself to be the true, obedient, perfect Son of God. But that victory, my brothers and sisters, that victory is yours and is mine. When we think about the imputed righteousness of Christ— that Jesus' perfect record is given to all who would believe, do you realize that these specific victories in this specific narrative, in addition to the rest of his perfectly obedient life, well, that's what's given to us. So it's as if you and I steadfastly remained aligned to the will of God as the obedient son of God, even in the face of incredible attacks. But as thorough and as complete as Jesus' obedience here was, as great a victory as this temptation narrative is, this isn't the end of the story. Because his perfect obedience through these temptations was not enough to save us. He still had to die to pay for the sins of his people. He had to go to the cross. He had to die in the place of his people. For that was the eternal plan of the Trinity. And so he was crucified on a Roman cross. And so Jesus, who remained steadfastly aligned to the will of his Father as the obedient Son of God throughout his life, with his last breath, would cry, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And as darkness covers the land, it seems, even but for a moment, that Satan had won. But we gather to remember this every Sunday, but especially today, perhaps, death could not keep him. Death is swallowed up in victory because Jesus rose again from the dead to reign forevermore. And so this victory in the wilderness is like a foreshadowing of his ultimate victory over sin, over death, and over the devil through his glorious resurrection. Jesus triumphs over Satan and so destroys the works of the devil. And that victory is ours. For those who trust in him, his victory is our victory. Through death, he destroyed the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and delivered all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And so, Paul says, we his people are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So what is this story about? Well, Jesus is the true son of God. And Jesus is victorious. And the fact that Jesus is the true son of God isn't like this theological idea out there. Because Jesus' victory is the difference between eternal death in hell and eternal life in glory for me and for you. 
So let me close with two thoughts here. First, if you are not a Christian, uh, perhaps someone invited you to church today, uh, perhaps you came because it's Easter Sunday, uh, I'm uh, so thankful that you are here this morning. But you need to know that in this conflict, right, Jesus and Satan, uh, in which Jesus is victorious, uh, you are not on the side of Jesus. You are of your father, the devil. You are in the kingdom of darkness. You are following the prince of the power of the air. You are headed for destruction. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus, this victorious Jesus, died for sinners like you and rose again for your justification so that you too can be saved. If you would repent of your sin if you would place your trust in him and him alone, in his perfect life, his death for your sin, and his glorious resurrection, you too can be saved. Second, if you are a Christian, in light of everything that Jesus has done for you, winning this victory on your behalf as the perfect, true, obedient Son of God, you must then live for him and pursue holiness and, and kill sin and know the word of God so that you might kill that sin. Right? All those things that I said this sermon is not about, well, I want you to go and do all those things as an application of this narrative. But even more than that, like even on a deeper level than that, I want you to look at him and his victory, both in this temptation and ultimately on the cross and through his resurrection. Because ultimately, brothers and sisters, our victory is not found in our ability to resist temptation or kill sin or be perfect. It's found in what Jesus had to do to rescue us precisely because we are not perfect. And so brothers and sisters, fight for holiness. Kill sin. Know the word of God that you might do so effectively. But don't look to your ability to fight. Look to your great high priest who fought on your behalf and has already won. Hebrews 4. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So what do we do? Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's pray. Father, we give you praise for Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, our representative, the second Adam, the true Israel, the true obedient Son of God, who has not only died for our sins, but has also lived the perfectly righteous life that we need, but could not attain on our own. Father, we pray that we would look to him, that in our struggles against sin, in our struggles against temptation, that we would look to him and that we would look to his finished work and his victory on our behalf, and that that would then compel us to live for his glory. 
We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.